Illinois Nazis. I hate Illinois Nazis. Travel back in time to the 80s. Reliving the advice. Carpe diem. Seize the day. The comebacks. Why don't you take a picture? It'll last longer. <laughs> and the technology. Are you telling me you built a time machine? Kind of a DeLorean? Because just like you, we're stuck in the 80s. Can you say stuck in the 80s? It's 2020. We got a half hour to talk, a bottle of Gatorade, and we're wearing headset microphones. Hit it. Hey, hey, welcome to Stuck in the 80s. It's Spearsy here. And Brad in LA. And today we celebrate the Blues Brothers on its 40th anniversary. For me and the Lord. We've got an understanding. We're on a mission from God. Stuck in the 80s is a member of the CLNS Podcast Network. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and the CLNS Media mobile app. You're such a disappointing pair. I prayed so hard for you. It saddens and hurts me that the two young men whom I raised to believe in the Ten Commandments have returned to me as two thieves with filthy mouths and bad attitudes. Hey, 80s Nation, we're on a mission from God this week. we got to talk about the Blues Brothers on its 40th anniversary without just saying, oh, I love this. Oh, isn't this great? A hundred times. Is that even possible? Can we just mm. insert a hundred movie clips instead? So, Steve, do you want an elevator pitch for the Blues Brothers? Yeah, you're great at those. Okay, here we go. Two orphans hoodwink a bunch of musicians into playing a concert to raise money to cover their old orphanage's overdue property tax bill. That's awful. I, w- I would never invest in that. Yeah, it's going to need to be a really long elevator, tall building for that one. Actually, I did read someplace the actual elevator pitch for this movie. The way that this movie got funded was the guy said, at universally said, John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Blues Brothers. How about it? See, that works. <laughs> yeah, I can see how this movie got made. So let's explain what's going on for today's show. We're, we're not going to dissect the movie, explain the plot, talk about the actors. We could record six shows about this movie. Oh, my gosh, at least. Instead of doing that, to mark its 40th anniversary, we're going to talk about the three things that impress us the most about this movie four decades later. Specifically, production hurdles the rebirth of the careers of several blues legends, and lastly, its legacy today. Ah, but first, some quick business. Hey, let's take a quick time out to talk about our sponsor, Awaken 180 Weight Loss. No, don't fast forward. None of us like to talk about our weight and the need to get healthy, but at our age, it's a critical conversation. When most people try to lose weight, they think exercise. Well, I think about rice cakes, which I cannot stand, but that's another story. It turns out losing weight is really all about nutrition. With Awaken 180 Weight Loss, you receive a customized nutrition plan, weekly one-on-one coaching, and the option to receive 80% of your daily foods to help you lose weight your very first week. For example, I learned chili dogs for breakfast are not the right solution after all. Huh. Who knew? (laughs) So gain the tools to know what to eat and how to eat. You put it in your mouth, you chew it, and you swallow it. That's how you eat. 
so you can keep the weight off for the long term. Visit the website and make the commitment to your future health. Visit awaken180weightloss.com. And we're back and we're ready to start talking about the Blues Brothers on its 40th anniversary. Brad, did you see you couldn't have seen this one in the theaters, right? Oh no, there's no way I saw this in the movie theaters. I remember when I was in a fraternity in the 80s, there were certain movies that you'd go to the video store for and you'd rent them like literally once a year. And right. in, in my fraternity it was Scarface and Blues Brothers. You could do worse. Yeah. Yeah, I think this movie, I mean, I certainly saw it in the 80s, but I think it really kind of came into my consciousness in a big way when, for some reason, we bought the soundtrack CD. And Katie and I started listening to the soundtrack a lot, and that got us to the point where anytime we would catch, even if like there was only 20 minutes left of the movie, we would watch it. Like If we'd be flipping the channels and come across it, oh, Blues Brothers, you just stop what you're doing and watch the rest of it. Yeah, so I yeah. think I've seen... The beginning of this movie, three times. The ending of this movie, 3,000 times. That's funny. It's probably the opposite for me. What's weird is that I, I know I've told this story before. In, in, in high school, my high school was into to these lip sync competitions. Longtime fans of the show know that, that my senior year, we won for Frankie Goes to Hollywood doing Relax. But what I never really say was there was two competitions that year, in the fall and in the spring. In the fall, Ooh. my friends and I... Did the Blues Brothers, and I think I was the bass player, and because I had a mm. mustache, I, I, I wasn't, and I wasn't willing to shave it off. So, so there you was were no Donald way. Duck Dunn. Yeah, so I'm Donald Duck Dunn, and we did it. I think we played Soul Man, and we we promoted the hell out of it ahead of time. Like we spray painted Blues Brothers on this giant tarp and hung it in the cafeteria. Stole a cop and car like and yeah, mounted a big PA so speaker to the roof. It was One a night only, lip syncing the Steve Spears <laughs> Blues Review Band. It was it was fun. It, you we, there? <laughs> it was fun, and we came in third place. I think we lost to hey bronze medal, baby. <laughs> we lost yeah, to out of, out, of, this, out of two entrants. You came in third. That was a real popular thing. There was probably at least fifteen or twenty acts that day. We came in third. Second place was these guys who always did U two. And uh, they were really good. Those guys. But what really pissed us off was that there were these guys that came dressed as in togas, and all they did was shout, you know, from Animal House. Mm. And they they danced around in circles, holding their instruments, not actually playing them. And they win for this. Now, wait a minute, Steve. That's just just lazy. Let's face it. (laughs) It was lazy. So anyway, you know, justice was later served when we would win for Frankie, but Blues Brothers has always been close to my heart. That, despite the fact that I do not know what kind of movie this is. Is it a comedy? Is it a musical? Is it a buddy movie? What? It's not an 80s movie. I mean, technically it's an 80s movie, but it doesn't feel like one. Now, who here at this table can honestly say that they played any finer or felt any better than they did when they were with the Blues Brothers. It's kind of a lot of things, but it definitely, you know, it's definitely got musical elements to it. We'll talk about that more later. Sure. But, I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's why it's endured, because it doesn't, it isn't just one thing. It's a lot of things. How much for the little girl? The women. How much for the women? So it was released on June 20th, 1980. John Landis did the directing. And when he was doing the directing and trying to, to 
to guide this God, mammoth gosh. of a aircraft carrier through the through this seas, he was telling people it's a, it's a musical. Like, don't okay. worry if things seem weird. It's a musical. Like he was using that as a like to keep the wolf in the door a little bit. Like, oh, we're yeah, gonna, like you know, it's all like, gonna make more sense when we put the music in here. Exactly, exactly. So, but as Brad said earlier, rather than just walk you through the movie A to Z and tell you every little piece of trivia that there is to know about it, which that would literally take weeks. You can go to IMDb uh, if you want. You can click yeah, on trivia. The internet is there for you if you want to know. The internet is there for you. But there are three things that we think of when we express our admiration for Blues Brothers. And so we're, we're going to talk about them now. You know, hopefully you'll enjoy it. When we're done, we do have seggies. And at the very end, assuming there's time, and there should be time because really there is no time limit for our podcasts. As we long have as a we don't quiz. run out of tape on the old reel-to-reel here. Yeah, yeah. I have a five-question quiz for Brad to see uh, oh, how big of a fan I'm ready. he is. I warmed so. up my brain. Ma'am, would it make you feel any better if you knew that what we're asking Matt here to do is a holy thing? Don't you blaspheme in here. Don't you blaspheme in here. I want to talk about the production and the hurdles that were involved in getting this thing started. And I think it starts with the idea. It is probably the most oddly conceived movie, you know, of our generation. The idea goes all the way back to 1973 when Dan Aykroyd first meets John Belushi in Toronto at one of Hmm. Dan's clubs. The club's jukebox is filled with Dan's music, R&B, soul, blues. John gets turned on right away and becomes a huge fan. Fast forward to 1975. The two of them join the cast of Saturday Night Live. They adopt the Blues Brothers monikers and the outfits and start playing gigs around town. Eventually, they're allowed to warm up the audience before SNL. But they don't finally make... The actual show until January 17th, 1976, when they perform in bee outfits. <laughs> oh, as part of the Killer Bee sketches. Yeah. I'm a cane, baby, baby. Want you to be my queen. Well, together we can make honey, baby. The world has never seen. Fast forward. What happens next? Belushi hits it big with Animal House. Suddenly, everybody wants him as a leading man. Suddenly, someone can can give that epic. John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Blues Brothers, how about it? Elevator pitch. Right, and have the recipient know who they're talking about. The script is originally called The Return of the Blues Brothers. Dan Aykroyd wrote the treatment. And it was, I think, 300 plus pages. <laughs> oh, my gosh. What, are we making the Ten Commandments here? I mean, come on. I know. But here's what's really weird. It's not like he sat down and kind of came up with the idea for this movie and just wrote it down. What really happened was Steve Martin was a host of SNL back in the days of the Blues Brothers. He hit it off with them. He invited them to open for a series of concerts he had out in L.A. From that, they recorded a live album. And in the liner notes for that live album, they kind of invented the story of the Blues Brothers. I will say that I think my earliest real exposure to the Blues Brothers was that album. Uh, You know, the Rubber Biscuit song and all that stuff. That was was in pretty heavy rotation in my school. Oh, yeah. Rubber Biscuit. I don't think any of us knew what we were saying, but we were... Bow, bow, bow. (laughs) What do you want for nothing? Rubber Biscuit. (laughs) 
<laughs> what do you want for nothing? Rubber biscuit? Bow, bow. So John Landis gets 300 some pages from Dan Aykroyd, <laughs> spends weeks paring it down to a acceptable amount, yeah. giving in all along the way to Aykroyd's crazy demands that he leave certain scenes in. He agrees just to shoot them, just to get Aykroyd off his back, knowing full well he's going to cut him during the editing. <laughs> yeah, wasn't the first cut of this film like two and a half hours long? Yeah. Ooh. Well, there's there's also a expanded edition that has an additional 18 minutes on it. <laughs> really? But I looked... Never seen that. I looked at a list of what the 18 minutes included, and for the most part, it's just... Longer versions of the songs, a couple extra lines in each scene. Nothing nothing totally It was more of a a nip here, a tuck there, not a wholesale storyline removal. Yes, which is good. It's good to hear. That's the whole point of editing, folks. That's why they call it editing. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Brad pointed out this great article this week that I read. It's from Vanity Fair back in 2013. And it tells you everything you want to know about the making of Blues Brothers. In fact, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. One of the craziest things I re- learned from that, and I had to like verify it in a couple of different places, cocaine was included in the film's budget to help the cast and crew stay awake during night shoots. It was, you know, 1979, 1980. <laughs> it, would, it would be like Red Bull today, I'm sure. But uh, John Belushi made the most of it. Even John Landis said he occasionally partook of it just to help stay awake for those night scenes. That's um, crazy. The other thing I don't really want to believe... I wonder, I wonder what that was called in the budget. Is it... I don't know. Back then, it might have just been cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's another odd revelation that you read in this story. And again, I had read it somewhere else, and I, so I've, I've confirmed it in two places. A lot of movie chains back in 1980 refused to play the Blues Brothers because of the type of music which they felt didn't appeal to white movie audiences and because predominantly, aside from the band, a lot of black actors. That's, uh, that's amazing. A typical movie budget gets booked into 1,400 theaters. Blues Brothers gets 600 theaters. It gets horrible reviews for the most part. Hmm. And it has exceeded its budget by $10 million. Does any of this matter? No. <laughs> it goes on to make $115 million at the box office and, and become an enduring classic. <laughs> Take that, Lou Wasserman. Ha! Here's the really weird thing. On the 30th anniversary of the movie, which would have been during the Stuck in the 80s era, the Vatican newspaper called the film, quote, a Catholic classic. <laughs> really? Yeah. Our Lady of Blessed Acceleration, don't fail me now. That's some good stuff. But to me, like I said, where I come to this movie is through the soundtrack. So I really want to talk about the music. Okay. So let's start with the basics. Let's start with the band. The band was not the Blues Brothers, right? You have Jake and Elwood, but who's playing the instruments behind them? They talked to their buddy Paul Schaefer, who at the time was in the SNL band, and he helped them round up a really pretty amazing lineup of studio musicians. Wait a minute, so why isn't Paul Schaefer in the movie? 
he had some other obligations that he couldn't or wouldn't just he wouldn't set aside. He was doing some work with Gilda Radner apparently that uh, John Belushi tried to get him to to basically walk away from him. He was like, no, I'm not doing that. So they had to find another keyboard player, and Paul Schaefer then disappeared from Blues Brothers' life for quite a while. Although he does appear in Blues Brothers 2000. But anyway, enough about Paul Schaefer, who's an interesting guy in his own right. Uh, he pulled together, like I said, just this is an amazing lineup, and these are just the guys that were in the actual movie. Lou Marini, saxophonist, is also a dishwasher in the movie. He was in the SNL band. Uh, Tom Bones Malone, trombone, and one of the Magic Tones, also in the SNL band. Those two guys were in Blood, Sweat, and Tears for a long time and also played on the Jake Giles band album Freeze Frame. Freeze Frame! Nice. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you go and look up any of these guys, you're going to see it, it's just an incredibly long list of people they've performed with albums that they're on. These guys are legit serious studio musicians every single one of them you've got steve the colonel cropper on guitar and donald duck dunn on bass they were the foundation of booker t and the mgs for a long time and were behind almost every hit that stacks did in the 70s murphy dunn he's murph obviously of the murph and the magic tones he's the keyboard player in this and uh, actually he probably has more lines than anybody else in the in the band you're marvelous. Thank you. I'm Murph, and these are the magic tones. Steve the Colonel Cropper, Donald Duck Dunn, Willie Too Big Hall, and Tom Bones Malone. We'll be back with the magic tones for the Armada Room's two-hour disco swing party after this short break. Till then, don't you go changing. Willie Hall, the drummer, he played in real life with the Barquets and the Isaac Hayes Band. Mr. Fabulous, Alan Rubin, the trumpet player, and Major D at, uh, what's the name of the restaurant? Doesn't even matter. No, sir. Mayor Daly no longer dines here. He's dead, sir. Actually, maybe he and Murphy have the most lines, but uh, he was, I mean, he joked before he passed away. He joked his resume is played with everybody. And it's pretty <laughs> true. And then the last guy that's in the band that's actually in the movie is Matt Guitar Murphy, who is a cook in the movie, as you might remember. He played with Howlin' Wolf and this guy maybe you've heard of, Chuck Berry. Nice. Chuck! worth noting that not all 12 musicians in the original lineup are in the film there's a couple other horn players and another percussionist and i mean they toured with a big band there's no two ways about it talk for a minute about the other musicians that appear in this movie i mean it's full of people who were legends in their own time but yet in come 1979 their careers were maybe not quite so well known yeah i think this is what this is what pushes the movie into musical territory. It's got musical features by just, as you say, some of the just heroes of soul and R&B music. It's not a stretch to say this movie introduced me to their music in a way that I wouldn't have probably been exposed to. You know, we mentioned Aykroyd's a huge fan of blues music and he was just, he was insistent that these musicians be cast. The studio was countering with, Oh, we really want to bring in Rose Royce. They really did a nice job with that car wash. Aykroyd just was like, not having it. This isn't going to be a thing. Uh, these songs, these four songs that we're going to talk about just really quickly, they are characters in the movie singing a song that drives the plot. So that makes this a musical, if you ask me. If you disagree, go ahead and send me an email. I will look forward to deleting it. He's not going to delete it, folks. He's going to read it. He's going to he's going to message me about it, and we're going to talk about it for two hours one day. Tr- Can trust you believe me. they said that? So rude. Let's start with the top, James Brown. <laughs> James Brown, come on. 
I mean, of course he's a fiery preacher in this movie. It's just, you can tell he's barely, he doesn't have to act. He just has to be James Brown. By 1980, as Steve mentioned, you know, he was kind of on the downswing. But this guest appearance, along with a couple other famous movie appearances, can you name them, Steve? Fueled quite the resurgence for Mr. Brown. Well, Rocky Rocky Four, yeah, would have been one. I, I, I honestly, God, can't remember the other one. I get in trouble for talking about this movie too much. Um, Dan Aykroyd is also in it. It's the movie. He's he, not Tron. He's not no, in Tron. He's not in Tron. Oh, Doctor Detroit. Yep, that's right. Yeah, James Brown. He, you know, he gets the message to the boys. Next up, we have Aretha Franklin, the Queen of Soul. Oh, come on. She plays the owner of a soul food restaurant and also, as it turns out, Macatar Murphy's wife. Now, you listen to me. I love you, but I'm the man and you are the woman, and I'll make the decision concerning my life. You better think about what you're saying. You better think about the consequences of your actions. Oh, shut up, woman. You better think, think, think about what you're trying to do to me. After thinking about this, I'm not sure Aretha really needed this bounce. I mean, I think she took it, but I think she was going to be okay. She had a pretty good decade in the 80s. Uh, Freeway of Love, I Knew You Were Waiting for Me with George Michael, and the remarkably prescient description of my current work life, Who's Zooming Who? <laughs> You're going to look pretty funny trying to eat corn on a cob with no f***ing teeth. Yeah, but can't you argue that she wouldn't have gotten those opportunities had it not been for this movie? Well, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, the movie predates all those songs. Oh, uh, very much so. Yes, very much so. But I don't I don't know. I could, I just feel like she had some momentum. She was recording. She was pretty active. She was touring a lot. She was, you know. So I, I think Aretha Franklin, well, Aretha Franklin and Ray Charles probably were the, needed the least introduction, if you will. Uh, uh, excuse me. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with the action on this piano. you've been dancing with all over the neighborhood so why didn't you ask me baby or didn't you think i could well i know that the bookaloo is out of sight but the shingle is a thing tonight but if that was you and me i got baby Ray Charles, uh, famously the proprietor of Ray's Music Exchange. I think this keyboard still has some action in it. He was probably the highest profile at the time. 
but even he hadn't had a really a, a hit record in probably 20 years. I mean, his his commercial peak was in the early 60s. He was very beloved for good reason. Sure. But, I, you know, I wasn't going to go plank down money to buy a Ray Charles record. And then the last one who had the biggest part, Cab Calloway, who plays Curtis, the janitor, and, you know, Jake and Elwood's fashion muse, obviously. And he's the one who sends him to see James Brown in the first place. And then at the end of the movie, he does uh, Minnie the Moocher with the band, which is just fantastic on its own without really understanding anything about it. Hey, folks, here's a story about Minnie the Moocher. She was a low-down hee-chee-coo-cha. She was the roughest, toughest frail, but Minnie had a heart as big as a whale. That's his big song. That was recorded in 1931 for the first time when he was a band leader and a regular at the Cotton Club. That's crazy. I know. It's nuts. He, to me, is, has the best role in the movie among all the, the music celebs. Yeah. Because he is that janitor and he's the one who comes back at the end with Minnie the Moocher, which I, which I can pretty much guarantee like nobody from the 80s generation had ever heard that song before. No. Cab Calloway was Blues a, a throwaway joke in a Bugs Bunny cartoon, maybe. But it wasn't anybody you could have picked out of a police <laughs> I wouldn't line. I surprised if that's right on the money. Hey, uh, look, pressure cooker. I bet you know a lot of my friends. Ooh. Like uh, Duke of Ellington, Count of Basie, Earl of Hines, Cab of Calloway, Satchmo of Armstrong. Upstarts and rogues. Never heard of them. The only other one I'll mention just really quickly is John Lee Hooker playing Boom Boom in the street. Oh, so good. Yeah. It, it's full of great moments, and I agree with you. If, if you're going to call it anything, you have to call it a musical. I mean, these, when people break out into song and dancing spontaneously during a movie, that, my friends, is musical. We're so glad to see so many of you lovely people here tonight. We would especially like to welcome all the representatives of Illinois' law enforcement community who have chosen to join us here in the Palace Hotel Ballroom at this time. We certainly hope you all enjoy the show. And remember, people, that no matter who you are and what you do to live, thrive, and survive, there's still some things that make us all the same. You, me, them, everybody. Okay, you've dutifully talked about the role of the music and how it played a role in reviving the careers of some some true legends of soul and blues. Let's talk for a second about the legacy of the movie. I, I think this is kind of interesting. We, we we talk about it now, and like so many movies from the 80s, we sort of remember it as we saw it then. Sure. And we were lucky to see it then. And if we saw it for the first time, too, like the fiancé has not seen this movie, and I wanted her to see it before we record this podcast, but we didn't get a chance. But I wonder, if you watch this movie today, is it as special as it was back 40 years ago? I'm going to say it probably stands up pretty well because it, it yeah, was I would think so. not based on the fashion of the time, not based on the music of the time. Right. I mean, you literally, this movie could have been made in 1970, 1990. I mean, it's... It's yeah. based on a skit. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's weakness is its strength. Yeah. 
Is it the best movie made from an SNL skit? I, I'd say so. The only competition would be Wayne's World, uh, maybe A Night at the yeah. Roxbury. <laughs> Certainly not Coneheads or It's Pat or Superstar. It's or, <laughs> it is one of the only two that spawned a sequel. Wayne's World had Wayne's World 1 and 2. Blues Brothers did have the 2000 sequel. I didn't watch it. I, I read the reviews, and I just felt like I would be I would be better off going outside and throwing my wallet into a a, a fire than spending it on a yeah for that. So I've I've heard the same things. I haven't seen it either. No. Two of the more interesting things that come out of it are the House of Blues chain, which I guess you could call it a music venue slash restaurant. Yeah. Which was founded in 1992 by by Dan Aykroyd, Jim Belushi. At this point, obviously John had passed, and Paul Schaefer makes a return now. He was one of the original partners. In the House of Blues. I sometimes go to the one in Orlando. I think I saw Cindy Lauper there. It's a... Uh, who else did I see there? Oh, I saw Violent Femmes with Echo and the Bunny Man. So every once in a while, they get a really good wow. show. Yeah. That's a pretty good bill. <laughs> yeah. The only trouble are no seats. So you have to stand there all night long. You got to want it, Spearcy. You got to want it. <laughs> there's, there's very few things musically that I want that bad. There was a House of Blues radio hour on the CBS radio network that lasted from 1993 to 2017, and it was hosted by Dan Aykroyd as Elwood Blues. Oh, that's great. I didn't so know that's that. A nice, that's a nice legacy. Yeah. And then I think if you want to talk more general about where does it rank among other 80s movies about music, I'd say it's pretty close to the top. Only because your competition is Purple Rain, great music. Not the Not best maybe movie. a great movie. Sign of, <laughs> Sign of the Times, Eddie and the Cruisers, Light of Day, Satisfaction. Amadeus might be an exception. And oddly enough, it's another movie based on music of a different era. <laughs> yeah, I I feel dirty clumping that in with these other ones. But yeah, you're right. Um, I think you, you probably have to throw Spinal Tap into the conversation. But yeah. that movie is is so tongue-in-cheek. The whole thing is the, – the music is a punchline just like everything else in that movie. Right. Um, you know, Sid and Nancy and La Bamba. Uh, again, it's weird to clump those two together. But those are movies about musicians more than movies about music. Does that make any sense? It makes total sense. I agree with you 100%. The Sid and Nancy is not about the Sex Pistols. Or the punk rock era. It's about Sid and Nancy. Hence the title, Sid and Nancy. If you disagree with us, send us an email. Uh, or if you agree with us, that makes us feel good too. Uh, the email is always yeah. uh, podcast at SITs.com. We just want to feel something. Anything. In the meantime, let's take time out for a little thing called The, the Seggies. What's happening, hot stuff? Ah, by the sound of the gong, it must be time for mystery movie moment. We'll play a snippet of a movie from the 80s. If you get it right, you're entered into the drawing for a, say it with me, people, postal-friendly bottle opener. Woohoo! Pay attention. Here's the clip from two shows ago. Look, to be truthful with you, I can't sleep in a room with 20 strangers. Oh, dear. And, I mean, look at this place. Yeah. The Army couldn't afford drapes. I mean, I'll be up at the crack of dawn here. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's Private Benjamin. I fooled absolutely nobody with that. Yeah, I haven't seen Private Benjamin ever, and I knew what this was. Like, what else could it be? Yeah, I know. I'd, sometimes I just... It's not Heartbreak Ridge. Hmm. 
That might be this week's clip. Who knows? Anyway, read some of the winners, Brad. Winners this week. Oh, my gosh. This is the Stuck in the 80s phone book. Here we go. Winners this week include Charles and Slowly Rebuilding Vegas, Kelly and Huntsville, Gene and Gilroy, Joe Herbers, Alan Titus, Base Note, Kevin Serving Wench, Colin and Little Rock, Alejandro Sticks, Cardoso Solis from Tijuana, Mexico, Jeff and Charity in Richlands, Virginia, Never Gonna Give You Up in Kissimmee, Florida, or is that Kissimmee? I don't know. Kissimmee. James in Indy, Chase in Ecuador, Hope in Indiana, Darren in Yukaipa, Chris the 80s Queen in Massachusetts, Anastasia in Colorado, Dave Parrott, Ken Mooch Milligan from Indiana, Edward in El Paso, Christine in Philly, Dr. Dim, Kevin from some town spelled C-H-I-L-L-I-W-A-C-K, FL number nine, Rock the Good Ag, Kevin Nez, Chuck Whaley, Victoria and Big Bear, Noel O'Regan, Dave from Wisconsin, Dr. John from LA Center, Kentucky, Nate Chops Johnson, Todd in Minnesota, Carlos M. Hernandez, Steve in Halifax, Steve stuck in the 80s in Denver, and my old friend, Quarantine. That's great. <laughs> okay, pay attention. Here's this week's mystery clip. Don't move. <laughs> the beast is fierce. But if we show no fear, we might escape. If you know it, email us at podcast at com and tune in soon to find out if you're a winner. <laughs> ah, the mystical refrain that is name that 80s tune. You know the drill. We're going to play a snippet of a song. If you get it right, uh, you know, fame, fortune, maybe we'll say your, mispronounce your name. The name of the town, by the way, is Kissimmee. Kissimmee? Kissimmee. Whatever. That's right outside of Disney World. It's about a 45-minute drive from here. Greg and Heather, our our longtime friends, are from Kissimmee. Anyway. I'm assuming that's who that was, yes. Pay attention. Here's the clip from two shows ago. That's Turn Back the Clock by Johnny Hates Jazz. I wish that I could turn back the clock. A lot of people guess wrong on this one, but yeah, uh, we we did lead people astray a little bit, but not too far. So you don't have to read quite as many names. That's the the upside. That is true. You ready for me to read some names, Steve? Read away. Here we go. Winners this week include Dave Horn, Bass Note, New Wave Todd, Eric in North Seattle, Jeff and Charity in Richlands, Virginia, Scott Rubenstein, Mal in Northern Ireland, Martin the Irish Evertonian, Kyle K in Arkansas, Tim in Media PA, Nate Chops Johnson, Peter Ryan, Stephen Halifax, Chris living on the air in Cincinnati Adams, Lou Sweet Lou Greeley, Noel O'Regan, and Steve stuck in the 80s in Denver. Okay, Brad, spin the wheel. Let's find out who gets the postal-friendly bottle opener. You're going to need a few extra minutes to put all the names on the wheel. So, you know, talk amongst yourselves for a moment. Okay, here we go. By the way, do us a favor. Uh, if you get some of our swag, post it online on your social media of choice. Put the hashtag SIT80s on it. And what we're going to do, our 15th anniversary is coming up soon. And we're going to start drawing names from the people that have used the hashtag and sending you... Random fun gifts. That is my pledge. Are you taking me on a special date for our 15th anniversary, Steve? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> I got you a thigh master, though. Oh, even better. Oh, it looks like it's going to land on uh, Rock the Good Egg. You're this week's winner. Excellent. So send us your postal address. 
and we will take care of the rest. In the meantime, pay attention. Here's this week's mystery tune. If you know it, email us at podcast at sitas.com. Don't forget the hashtag sitas when you uh, post a photo of it. And uh, tune in soon and find out if you're a winner. We'll be right back after this commercial break. Hey, look at that. How do you do it? Tell us how it's done. First thing you gotta do, step into winning shoes. Pony passes, pony punts, pony does some funky stunts. For going long, say pony. For coming on strong, say pony. For football. Shoes are number one, made just for you. So win every game you play. Pony shoes are the only way. Say win, say pony, say move, say pony. B O N Y, pound the streets, touch the sky. B O N Y, the shoe that lets you take off and fly. Say pony. And we're back. We've got a few minutes left. And as promised, I came up with a quiz to see how much of a fan of the Blues Brothers Brad in L.A. is. Okay. So are you ready, Brad? I believe so, yes. I've turned off the Google. Five questions. An old man who lives in Elwood's hotel apparently made an earlier off-screen request for Elwood to bring him a certain type of food product. What was it? It's Cheese Whiz, Steve. Yeah. This cheese was the actor. By the way, is Lane Britton, who is a longtime makeup artist in Hollywood. So there you go. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's, that's nice a shot. very random line. Speaking of Elwood's hotel, this is kind of a bonus question. Uh, Elwood isn't especially worried about being tracked down by the police because he used a fake address when he renewed his driver's license. What uh, Chicago landmark address did he use? Well, Steve, the address that he used is actually the address of Wrigley Field. You are correct, sir. So that's not bad. You're two for two. Feeling good. Okay, here we go. Question number two. Blues Brothers is full of cameo appearances by celebrities of the day. Which of the following people does not make a cameo appearance? Steven Spielberg, Twiggy, Joe Walsh, or Chaka Khan? Joe Walsh by process of elimination. Nope. Actually, it's a trick question. All four of them make cameos in the movie. <sighs> Steve Spielberg. <laughs> I, I knew the Steve other Spielberg. Three. What is Joe Walsh? What is Joe Walsh's cameo? Joe Walsh is the first prisoner to jump on the table at the end of the movie when they're in prison. Oh, of course he is. Steven Spielberg was the Cook County Assessor's clerk. Twiggy was the woman with the Jaguar convertible, and Chaka Khan was the soloist at the Triple Rock Baptist Church Choir. So there you go. You got me, Spiracy. You got me. I would have guessed Chaka Khan, but that that's just me. Anyway, here we go. Question number three. Which of the following weapons does Camille, played by the late Carrie Fisher, not use against Jake and Elwood during the film? Is it a flamethrower, a hand grenade, a remote-controlled bomb, or an assault rifle? Uh, I think it's the hand grenade. You are correct. You are very correct. Very good. Yeah. She blows up a building. She tr- sets them on fire in a phone booth next to a propane tank. 
Yep. And the assault weapon in the tunnels. Yep. Yep. You got it. There is no hand grenade <laughs> in the uh, use of uh, the Booze Brothers. Okay. So the curl up and die storage locker does not have any hand grenades in it. Yeah. Actually, that was an that was an alternate question I had. I was going to ask, but I, I didn't use it. it. Was the name of her? Uh, oh, good. Salon. Okay, this is an easy one. I think people at home can play along with this one for sure. In order to convince the band that they do have a gig, Jake decides to impersonate the leader of a band called the Good Old Boys. He asks the waitress at the club what kind of music is generally played at that venue. Finish her sentence. Oh, we got both kinds. Punk and thrash metal. No, no, no. It's country and western. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Great. We are the good old Blues Brothers boys. <laughs> last question. I don't know why this is the last question. It doesn't make any sense to have this as the last question, but yet here it is. Uh, all good things must come to an end, including this podcast. Number five, the Blues Mobile will run on regular gas. Why? I'm going to give you a multiple choice. You probably don't need okay. it, but I'm going to give the listeners at home. Because it's got a cop motor. Because it's a model made before catalytic converters. Because it's on a mission from God. Or because it hasn't got a choice. Actually, I don't know this one. I'm going to have to guess. And I, I, I like the answer D, whether that's true or not. I know it has a uh, cop. I'm sorry, motor. Brad. It does have a cop motor, but that's not the reason. The reason is it's a model made before catalytic converters. So there you go. Uh, well, okay, you like now it? you're getting all technical like it, yeah. on me. You know that they say it. They say it in the movie. As I like to say, technically right is the best kind of right to be. Yes. Hey, that's all the time we have this week. We hope you enjoyed our different kind of take on the Blues Brothers on its 40th anniversary. 1980 was a huge year. For so many landmark 80s movies, I wouldn't be surprised if you see us doing a, one of these again real soon. A lot of great movies were Woo-hoo! released in the summer of 1980. But in the meantime, Brad and I remain here with Elwood and Jake, hopelessly stuck in the 80s. Stuck in the 80s is a member of the CLNS Media Network. Special thanks to Check Battery Daily for our theme music. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or the CLNS Media mobile app.